Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Before we get going today, I want to tell you about my very good friend's podcast, Badass Digital Nomad, hosted by Kristen Wilson. Now, you might remember Kristen from episode 96 on the Expat Money Show, where she absolutely killed it. Badass Digital Nomads is an awesome podcast that helps you to master the art of living and working from anywhere in the world. Kristen Wilson is a global relocation expert and online entrepreneur who has been helping people to move abroad and become expats since 2005. She has lived and worked across 60 countries in the past 20 years, and now she can share how you too can achieve a location-independent lifestyle through her actionable how-to episodes and inspiring interviews with online entrepreneurs and world travelers. With more than 90 episodes published to date, you can learn things like the eight essential skills you need to become a digital nomad, the pros and cons of remote work visas, or how to become a digital nomad after age 50. You also won't want to miss her regular updates about which countries are open for travel and tourism, and of course, my episode on how to invest offshore. You can find Badass Digital Nomads on every podcast platform out there or by visiting badassdigitalnomads.com. Also, make sure to subscribe to Kristen's YouTube channel, Traveling with Kristen, for weekly travel videos and cost of living guides on the best places in the world to travel. Okay, let's jump into today's interview. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guests are avid adventurers. Since 2014, they've been traveling the world, one hometown at a time. Together with their free-spirited children, the family have visited over 70 countries in their quest to provide a global education for their children while building a deeper bond as a family. Over the past six years, these world towners have found themselves hiking 580 miles along the Camino Trail in Spain, motorhoming through every country in Europe, and most recently, buying a sailboat in France to sail the world's oceans. Please welcome to the show, Jessica and Will Suero. How are you guys doing? Hey, how are you today? Awesome. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much for being here. Why don't you guys take a minute and kind of walk us through your backstory? How did you guys decide to leave it all behind and take your kids on the road? How did you guys decide that homeschooling was the option for you? I'm super curious. I want to learn everything from you. We had a crystal ball. We knew COVID was going to happen. <laughs> That's and at that point, we decided. We're not going with the midlife crisis story this time. 
<laughs> I mean, Will and I are not your, or one night we decided we hated our lives and we're in the rat race and decided to sell everything and six months later got on the road. Um, not at all. We, it took us seven months to become full-time travelers. Um, not six we, months, seven months. No, I'm sorry, seven years. Seven years. Did I say okay. seven months? You yeah. <laughs> said seven months. But Sorry, seven years. <laughs> it actually took us. It took us. Well, yeah. You you go in the long version. Okay. Shorten me up. Yeah. So no, we no, get no. To the good stuff. So essentially, I mean, it took us seven seven years in terms of like us pursuing expat opportunities through corporate gigs that I had, and and they never really panned out. And so, uh, eventually, we we got tired of waiting, and we we took a summer that we went and lived in France. Uh, and what, like three months we spent there? Yeah, almost the three months. Part. And when that opportunity ended, or not that opportunity, but that experience ended, because we thought that, that was going to be our our new normals. That you know, if we couldn't make this full time because the company was going to foot the bill, then we'll just do summers and so forth and so on. And I worked for an international organization that had offices around the world that would let me work from offices, you know, near and far. But after that. That summer in France, we realized that this could not be just a summer-only event. We realized it would, it profoundly changed um, our children as as well as our relationship as a family. We had more time together. We realized how we were not huge consumers to begin with, but we were in the American rat race, and we realized how much less we could survive on and still thrive. And we had some kind of crazy things that happened during that summer in Paris, and we also survived that as well. And we came back and said, wow, we, everyone was thriving so much. We need to find a way to do this. We need to find a, do, a way to do this more than just summers because a summer is not enough. And you know, once, once you kind of take that plunge and kind of do that test drive of something like that, you're, as we say, ruined forever. And even at this point, you know, and ruined in a good way, even at this point, six years later, we know we cannot go back to our other life. And we had to make a decision about that when COVID hit. Um, especially since we have a travel business that was profoundly affected by COVID. What are we going to do and what are we willing to sacrifice so that we don't have to go back to that? And we didn't have an awful life. Yes, we were in the rat race, but we had good jobs that we liked. Um, we lived comfortably. We had a great community of friends. Our kids were not homeschooled at the time and we loved the school that they were in. Life was not bad. We just wanted to travel and wanted to educate our kids out in the world and connect deeper as a family and learn about other people and cultures. And as much as we had a pretty good taste of that because our kids were in an international school with a lot of diversity and a lot of different languages, it just wasn't the same. And now that we're out here doing it, we realize it wasn't even close to being the same. So that's amazing. Your kids were actually in international schools when you were in the U.S., but you guys are Americans. Because, I mean, I'm very familiar with international schools. I've lived all over the world. But always it's expats who are sending their kids to international schools. I've never right. seen anyone who's done an international school when you are, it's your hometown. So maybe it's, talk me through that a little bit. It's an interesting process. So when, when corporate job expat opportunity number one failed, we decided that's it, I'm done. Because I was working for a large uh, public accounting firm and working 80 hours a week, you know, it just wasn't, wasn't what I was looking for anymore, especially if they would not send me to somewhere sort of interesting in, a, in a, another country. And at the time we were living in Los Angeles. Right. So at that point we said, that's it. We're, we're, we're putting the dream to bed and we're going to move to, to Boston and, and start a new life because 
why not? And you we're going to live in suburbia because that's what people do. Even though we were not, we were not raised in suburbia, either one of us, we thought, well, this is what good parents do for their kids to provide them with a nice life, right? Right. So as we were driving around looking for a place to live, looking for a house to buy, uh, we got sidetracked. We were looking for, we were looking in one area of Boston that we thought had a lot of charm, had a lot of, you it's more know, urban and gritty and diversity. It's Dorchester. And then when we got a little lost, we, we made a detour to this little town, or I guess whatever, um, a 25,000 person town named Milton. And we just saw an open house. We walked in. We said, okay, this doesn't look so bad. It looks Listen, very I'm a sucker cookie cutter. Open, house or open houses anywhere in the world. I will go. And I've, I see an open house sign and he doesn't even wait for my, my mouth's halfway open. And he goes, <laughs> you want to stop? And I'm like, yes, because I love real estate. And as much as the house was nice and it actually wound up being the house that we bought. No, no. No, it wasn't. One that. street over. It was one street over. Um, the, the realtor clued us into the fact that the neighborhood had a French immersion program in their public school system. And, and that we were like, what? Right, we, were, we were hooked at that point. And, we, and then we did a little more digging and we realized that that was the only neighborhood in all of Boston that we're looking at that had this, this type of program. And the thought of, you know, having at that point a three-year-old and a newborn about to, to be to birthed to this world, uh, exposed to you know another language at a public school system, we're like, of course, For let's free? do it. I mean, you pay it in your taxes, right? Yeah. But we were like, who would turn this down? We're like, we can live in suburbia. And, and just for the record, I'm not anti-suburbia. It just didn't, it just wasn't, it was wonderful while we were there. We spent five years there and made great friends and had a wonderful community. But long-term, it wasn't what we wanted for our family and our children. So. That was kind of the start of the language, the language. And from there, we enrolled, both of our kids went to language preschools that had nothing to do with the public school. And eventually, our eldest went to the immersion um, program in the public school. And then there were some things that we didn't like about the, the public system. It was a great system, but we didn't like about that system was because it was like 97% Caucasian. And diversity is a real, we're Will's um, Cuban American and I'm a bit of a mutt. And we came from living in Los Angeles for a very long time in New York City and we thrive and love diversity. And the environment just did not provide the diversity we wanted and what we wanted to raise our children in. So at that point is when we made the decision to transfer to the international school. And um, we were there for what was supposed to be six months and ended up being two years because another expat package fell through. But we chose the international school basically because of the diversity. There were a lot of different languages and cultures there. The education style, excuse me, was an IB program. So it was international approach and a global education rather than being more insular, which we really appreciated and loved. So it wasn't a French international school or a Spanish international school? It was school French. It was, it was French. French. Okay. Yeah. And it was, I don't remember the percentage, but our, our daughter entered there halfway through second grade. Our son entered in kindergarten. And I believe it was like 100%. Was it 100% taught in French? I can't, I don't 100%. recall. I think it was 100% until middle school. So they were completely, they were both fluent from a very, very young age. Our son went to a Spanish preschool. Our daughter went to a French preschool. They both spent a year in an, an English preschool at four years old. And then starting at age five, they went right into language schools. Mm -hmm. And it was really a great decision. Will and I don't speak French. Um, and they are incredible. They're fluent and fluent to the point that they have a really authentic accent. It has taken some time a lot of time and effort and a little bit of money to maintain that fluency, but it was a great decision. Absolutely great decision. 
Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so let's let's run with that a little bit before we get into some of the adventures that you guys have had and, and where the education has taken you. So you say that it took a little bit of time and extra effort and money to keep them fluent. What does that look like? Online classes, um, extended time in France now? Walk me through that a little bit. That's a great question, and I, I love talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> so really... everybody, we had like a little powwow for 20 minutes, half an hour beforehand, and we're like, yeah, let's talk about education. So like, yes. So we're, we're um, <laughs> Jess and I are both, I think, very big into uh, education and homeschooling and world schooling and all these alternative methods. So anything to do with this, I'm, I'm super pumped up about to discuss. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I'm the one who primarily spends a lot of time talking about this, but Will and I are definitely a team. He's he's the more the quieter one about it and I'm the one who kind of vocalizes all the plans and stuff that we've done so it definitely takes a village when it comes to this so because Will and I don't speak French when we left when we left the United States to move to Costa Rica we had our daughter was finishing fifth grade finishing fourth finishing fourth grade and our son was in I don't know first or first and a half because the Costa Rican system is a little different and our our we did a lot of research and spoke to a lot of fluent French speakers and teachers and said, how are we possibly going to maintain this? We don't speak French. What are we going to do? Um, and their suggestion and solution was to try and keep them in a French school at least until fifth grade or around the age of 10. And then find a way to maintain that language through either tutors or online classes or living in you know, the language of the country at some point. So what we did with our daughter, and we did the same with our son. Well, no, it was a little different for him. Our daughter, so she, when we moved to Costa Rica, she wanted to be homeschooled. So we homeschooled She her. actually came to you and said she wanted to be homeschooled. She'd been saying it for years and I was, wow, I was, I was kind of against it. Uh, Will, who went to a parochial school, was totally into it and said, we should do it. I was working from home at the time, had my own business and said, no, there's no way I'm qualified. I can't do this. I don't want that responsibility. Every parent before they homeschool says that. And we're all, we're so qualified because we have our children's best interest in mind. You know, there are amazing teachers out there, but parents really have the best interest of their children in mind, where the teacher has to have 30 kids' best interest in mind. So long story short, I'm so glad we did it. Uh, Will was a driving force behind it, Will and Avalon, and I jumped on board and I took on a huge responsibility and I have loved every every moment of it and I'm so glad we did it. Um, so anyway, so back to the language part. So we, with Avalon, we, uh, we'll, we'll start with Largo, we moved to Costa Rica with Largo, we specifically chose um, a suburb of San Jose because it had a French and Spanish school. So our goal was hit with him was to keep him in a French language school until he was 10. And we did that. He went to a French Spanish school in Costa Rica. Then we moved to Ecuador. He did the same thing in Ecuador. And then we moved to France and he went to French public school. And then he was homeschooled after that. For his sister to maintain the French language, we, um, purchase a program which is CNED, which is um, the French Ministry of Education homeschooling program. It is a nightmare of a website to navigate, especially if you're not a French speaker. Um, <coughs> excuse me. However, it's a fabulous program. It is workbook based, which I'm not a huge fan of, but we had to make some compromises in order to keep the education, uh, keep the language. So what we did was we purchased the language arts program, and then we hired, we happened to have um, someone who recommended a French, a native French speaking teacher in Costa Rica, and she would go and have 
do you remember how many hours a week she was with her? About four hours a week around there. Four hours a week doing the Kined. And she maintained it that way. And then we did the same thing in Ecuador. We went to the French Alliance and found a tutor and she maintained it through that. So she was able to maintain it. I mean, there were some other things. She had French friends that she spoke French with um, online. She had some play dates and stuff like that. But primarily it was just through a tutor. And then when she hit seventh grade, she wanted to try out public school in um, middle school, basically in France. And so she went to middle school there. And then she, after, went. She, went to, all... she went to middle school there because she wanted to try it out. After wow. that, she said, hell no, never again, because the bureaucracy was insane. And then we started homeschooling her again after that. And she did the Kined for one more year. And then in ninth grade, her French was at a level where we tested her um, at Oregon State University, which has some really great online programs. And ever since then, she's been taking uh, 300 and 400 level college university classes in French. So French literature, French gast gastronomy, however you say that, um, the, a bunch of other classes. So she's taken, I think, four um, upper level university French classes at this point, and she's 16. You went really fast on that. I did, I'm sorry. Was I talking too fast? <laughs> no, it's perfect. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about this. Okay, so I, I have to, I'm a fast let's pause talker, for a I'm sorry. That's just fine. So let's pause for a second. So when you say she went to middle school, you guys all went over to France or she went to like boarding school or no, something no. like that? No, no, we all, I know there's a lot of pieces of this puzzle, I'm sorry. We lived a year in, a year in Costa Rica, a year in Ecuador, a year in the south of France. Okay. And so when in we moved Mont to France, and Béziers, and where were in you? In a small little village of like how many people there? Sixty thousand. Sixty thousand around there. Just just east of Toulon. Okay, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of her path with the language, um, and now she has a business of her own where she teaches French to kids. And she has a wait list. Like she's, it's really, she's really amazing. The other piece of the puzzle is that we always required our kids to have a language teacher or tutor that was a native speaker. Yeah. Period. I think that straight off the bat, that is a really important thing. I mean, yes, you can learn language from someone who's learned it as their second language. But I mean, I think that when you get into the nuances of the language and the accent, and I mean, a lot of this is imitation. So if you're imitating someone who doesn't speak it perfectly, even though they might have the vocabulary, I mean, you're going to pick up bad habits. You're going to pick up things that are not correct. I mean, I watch Spanish television, and that's why my Spanish accent is quite good, because I've watched <laughs> 500 hours of Netflix, right. all 100% in Spanish. So, I mean, I know the little nuances. And is my Spanish perfect? Absolutely not. But I mean... A lot of times when I speak to people, they think that I've been studying a lot longer than I have. Certainly not, what, 18 months since we moved to Panama. And right, right. That's really, it's really important to have, to be speaking, I mean, to be hearing native speakers. And it's also really important to integrate with the culture and make friends. So when we lived in Costa Rica and Ecuador, they had friends that spoke Spanish. They had friends that spoke English. And that makes a huge difference in the learning pro process, as well as it no totally normalizes learning another language for the kids, especially if it feels very foreign to them. And if their parents don't speak another language, it feels even more foreign to them. Like say, for instance, because our son went to French school in Costa Rica. So it actually made his French a thousand percent stronger because we're in Costa Rica, because the only common ground they had between the kids who were going to school there, which some were French locals, but most of them were actually um, like just Costa Ricans 
who wanted to have the experience of going to a French school. Um, the, the the language in the playground was was Spanish, which he did not know very well, but he knew a little bit. And so the only common ground was the French. So he had to actually be really on his game with his French, where when, when he was going to school in the U.S., you know, yeah, then they just rely English, back on you know, English, of course. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right, right. So he had to really just survive. It was, it was sink or swim for him when it came to, to knowing French. And then, you know, surviving on the playground was then learning a third language. And, <laughs> and, and, and we were concerned that his English skills were, gonna, were going down the toilet. But, you know, with, with a little bit of help, and at that point, we had to get a tutor to help him right. with his English. He didn't have English. He didn't have English for about four years because we lived in Costa Rica for a year, Ecuador for a year. They didn't have English classes, and then France for a year. And by the time he started taking English again, we had to get him a tutor, but he caught up like that. You know, and kids pick up and catch up so quickly. Like, it was... It was the language, and I know you don't want this whole focus to be on the language. We're big, big believers in multiple languages, and it it really is. I wouldn't say it's that easy to get it, but if you're willing to kind of immerse your kids into a school or environment or something like that and then maintain it after that, um, like, for example, in in Costa Rica and Ecuador, our son had a little bit easier than our daughter because he went to a Spanish and French French preschool. So he had the exposure all day of the Spanish. Our daughter, because she already spoke French, we got her a tutor two hours a week and she joined a local dance group where the girls didn't speak a lick of English. So we spent as a family, a ton of time with this group. We traveled to different productions. No one spoke any, any English. And she got the Spanish between two hours of French Spanish tutoring a week and going to these dance groups. Like they just get it. Kids are so, like if I was gonna say anything to anyone listening, it would be get them their languages and get them young. Just start them young. So it's totally normal and natural for them. And they will pick them up so quickly. And we know as adults how difficult it is to learn another language. As kids, it's just, it just happens, it's magic. <laughs> okay, so let's rewind a little bit. You said that you had put them through a uh, formal homeschooling program for French through the French government or a French yeah, curriculum. Kened. So what was that like going through something that was very formal and structured, but then trying to do it as a homeschooling? And, and what was the price point on something like that? I'm very curious because those things are... are are done by official schools opposed to just a yes. normal language course or something that you know maybe you or I would take like online. So so let's let's let's, let's bang our heads against the wall because when you even talk about it, this well, my stress <laughs> level rises because it's, it's, it's such a pain. Sorry, <laughs> it's it's almost like an a la carte system because the French yeah. Ministry of Education has you know this wonderful program for homeschoolers that which is for people who are French traveling around the world. We, we, we elected to do it because we wanted just to keep the, the grammar and the language alive. The, the, the Kined system is, is a whole suite of services. They have, you know, from French history to, to language arts to so forth and so on. I mean, there's like eight different classes you can do, arts and sciences, math. Um, we only chose the, the language arts program to actually enroll our kids into because and we thought about it we thought about doing like the full well, monty i think do you remember we did buy we bought the history section do you remember in the beginning in costa rica we used it for like five minutes because it was so 
it was so against how we wanted to educate them and just even just doing the language art part was really difficult for kind of us to digest because it was so rigid and just so structured but we really felt that that was the only way that we were going to be able to get the language and maintain it and, and get we wanted didn't want them to just be able to speak it we wanted them to be able to read write and speak and they needed that grammar component and frankly learning grammar in any situation is never fun right it's never yeah, easy no or doubt. fun or <laughs> playful or i mean and it's it can so funny be, that schools focus like exclusively on grammar and right? i speak fluent spanish and i mean i have no idea i'm a professional writer and speaker my english grammar is horrendous like don't ask me <laughs> so any of the rules in english and, and this is what i do for a living so i mean i don't think that grammar is the most important thing and certainly should not be the focus of any child's education if you want them to learn another language now the you see you were asking about the price point um, it's about 250, 60 dollars, uh, 250, 60 euros for the whole year for the program for the language arts. Well, there's the only saving grace. That's cheap as chips because I was worried for a second maybe it might be thousands of dollars. I know that so many programs that are done by the governments, I mean, these curriculums, they don't think that entrepreneurs can do them. And well. You know. There's another element, though. Here comes the higher ticket price point. <laughs> because we don't speak French, we cannot kind of help them and work through the workbooks with them. So when they have done this CONED program on and off over the years, we have hired a tutor to work with them on the program. So um, anywhere between six and eight hours a week, someone will work with them um, uh, excuse me, it's in Ecuador, our daughter had someone in person, in Ecuador and Costa Rica, she had someone in person, but since we've left France, traveled in an RV and now on a sailboat, it's always been someone on Zoom. And we've been really lucky to find people that that we can work with um, within our price point. Well, when I was saying before, like there's, it's, it can be expensive. Um, French tutors, at least the ones that are native speakers, were, are ranging anywhere between 15 and 20 US dollars. Um, Per, per hour. So, mm -hmm. and I couldn't find someone of, in North Africa or something to do we that. Haven't, um, we've gone through a lot of teachers. Um, a lot of them have a very rigid kind of French education system upbringing. So they're not so kind to kids and they don't really care about the whole child approach. I don't want to generalize. I hate to say that, but we've had not has not had the best experience with French teachers um, making the kids cry and telling them they're stupid and stuff like that. And when that happens, they're gone. So we've found a couple that we've really liked over the years and stuck with them. But not only that, but then uh, we, we, we've we contemplated that, but yeah. our, our whole premise is to have someone who is native from France. So, you but know, you're talking even, a French speaking country. Right, right. So saying? even if yeah, you're- There's lots of yeah. countries in North Africa that are native French speakers. I mean, if you go to Algeria or Morocco or Tunisia or something like this, I'm sure that there would be some very strong speakers. They do have an accent that is very uniquely non-French. Um, that it's, it's noticeable. So, and and actually, when because we've gone to Morocco several times, yeah. And our kids who can point pick this stuff out, not not us, but <laughs> no. uh, they'll say, yeah, they speak French, but it has more of an Arabic accent to it. And and you know, we we you know we it would fly in the face of of what we've been trying to get them is which that they can pass off as a as a native you know, anywhere in Paris or, or anywhere else in France. So that's sort of where we're, yeah. what we're left with. Yeah. Interesting. So, okay, so then let's dive maybe a little bit away from the languages, but more into what made you guys leave the traditional education or these types of things, and then go really into the homeschooling side of it. We will just take a quick break. 
In a lot of the circles that I run in, the content creators are being deplatformed. People are being banned on Twitter, censored on Facebook, and YouTube channels are being demonetized. Basically, cutting off people's ability to reach their audience and share their message with the world. And it has gotten even worse than that. Entire companies are under siege. Servers are being shut down, and their products are being taken off of the App Store and Google Play. There is no question about it. There are some scary things going on right now. I want to make sure that I can continue to provide for you the best news and information from the offshore space every single week. That's why I want you to pause this episode right now and visit expatmoneyshow.com forward slash protection to sign up for EMS Pulse, my weekly newsletter. In it, you will find personal insights from my travels and over 21 years of experience in the international space. We will be looking at foreign businesses, generating income online, asset protection, corporate structures, new visas for digital nomads, and a whole lot more. So I hope you will take me up on this opportunity and sign up for my newsletter to make sure that you can continue to receive the best from the offshore space now directly to your inbox. Go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash protection. Okay, let's jump back into the episode. You know, it was, our daughter wanted to try homeschooling. Um, We were, Will was more disappointed with the system than I was, but we did not like the kind of one size fits all education. We didn't like, we believe in public education, first of all, and we believe everyone deserves an education. However, it's very, teachers have a hard job. They have to have, Avalon was in classes that had 26 to 30 kids, one teacher and no aid. She was a good student, but she wasn't being challenged to move forward at all. And her her needs weren't really being met because they had to meet the needs of everyone. And I completely understand that. And I don't think my child should be given advantages over other another kid because she the stuff is too easy for her, whatever. But that aspect of the, well, you're going to have to wait until everyone else catches up wasn't really helping her at all because she wasn't growing as much as she could and her interests weren't really being met. It was like, you take this class, this class, this class, and that's what you do. Um, And we ran into the same issue when she went back to public school in France, she had to take English. And I'm like, can't she just take Italian or something? She already speaks English. They're just doing the ABCs. Nope, that's the way it is. So it was kind of, you know, it's a one size fits all. And we wanted our children to have the opportunity to have a different style of education if they wanted it. You know, if they if they wanted, um, you know, math, English, science, that kind of the more of the mainstream core stuff, then then fine, we will give that to them. But if we found out one of them had this particular talent and passion for pottery, we wanted to have the ability to focus on that. And we just because of that, the the system of everyone in the same room and also being around the same age children all the time we didn't think was beneficial and we didn't really know until we came out and kind of started living out in the world and educating out in the world and seeing the value of having them not around the same age the same gender possibly the same religion and we don't practice the religion but often you get that in communities that you live in where there's there's public schools that people go to so the value of kind of being out of the box and being able to educate on a different um different style we felt really suited our kids and we saw that from our summer in Paris because our summer in Paris even though it wasn't it was summer and it wasn't school I created these um, journals for the kids that they wrote in and we had certain reading material we did and then we had about 50 activities that I put on cards that we put on the wall and on the days I wasn't working we'd pick one and go do it so let's go to the Louvre and look at the mummy presentation or whatever and then draw pictures or make our own mummies out of paper mache and stuff like that and the kids really, really thrived and enjoyed it and kind of loved this, this 
more alternative style of education and learning out in the world. And they do have a traditional component to their education now, um, and even more so kind of right now because we're in COVID and we can't kind of go out and do and see anything. But we've always been of the philosophy that you, you can learn really great things from other people out in the world and by doing and seeing and having these conversations. Um, we've never been a textbook family at all. Not at all. Well, we do sense. living books. So, you know, memoirs and stuff like that. We read a ton to the kids, but just kind of reading from a dry book and regurgitating dates, I always thought was just the craziest thing in the world. So what are your kids <laughs> like now? You guys have been what, at this for six years. What are they like? What do they like to do or their interests? No, no. What, that, are, what are they like? What are they as like people, as, humans? as human beings? Yes. Oh, I'm boy, curious. Which, I mean, like this has been six years you guys have been traveling. You guys have done some incredible things. And, and I want to talk about your adventures, but I'm curious. Like, okay, let's at start the with end Alan. of it, I mean, what are they like? I mean, are they, are they social? Do they make friends easily? Do they communicate well? Are they compassionate and um, empathetic? Are they, yes. what so are they like? Let's both, well, hold on, let me, let, let me rewind just a second before we get to this, because <laughs> I, think, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think one of the reasons why, the reason why I was very passionate about this threat, this leads very well into what they're like now is because when when <laughs> Avalon was in fourth grade, the year before we, we left, there you, you could start to see the the roots grow of groupthink and group yeah. mentality and sort of how you know the, the culture of the, you know the alpha dominates and everyone else sort of is a subservient. And and that she was almost like on the periphery of some of these conflicts that were starting to emerge on who was trying to, you know, jockey for position. And, and it was very disheartening for her yep. to see. She's and, a sensitive one. <laughs> and, and, and it was like, why, why are people treating each other this way? And, you know, in third grade in second grade and first grade, everyone's just like happy to be alive in fourth grade. You start sort of seeing, you know, personalities, dominate. Mean girl stuff started right. emerging. Yeah. And, 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 and that was my, 1000% reason for, for wanting to, to start this alternative yeah. lifestyle was because I wanted to give her the opportunity to grow and cultivate by her own will. Um, and when we say her, she was our oldest. So a lot of the stuff we say is her because she was kind of the trailblazer for this. And what worked for her, we did for him. And I'm really glad you brought that up. I wasn't going to kind of put you on the spot and say, well, why don't you bring up what you said? You, But Will was really just didn't like the group thing. And not that I like it, but he really didn't like it. And he didn't like the mean girl stuff. And since you're asking, you know, what kind of, did you have more you want to say about No, no, no. Okay. I was just leading up to sort of who she is now. And she is 1,000 percent um who she thinks she is to the, to the extent that we try to tell her maybe you shouldn't do it this way it's like dad you know i know what i'm doing <laughs> <laughs> i think you know will said that kind of you know groups are forming and kids weren't so nice and she that she was really you know she'd come home at, at night when i'd give her a snuggle she'd say these two are fighting and it really upsets me and this one said something mean um, one of the th main things that's come out of how we live is that our children are very, very compassionate. Um, they don't see any type of, of age difference, gender, um, um, financial income, any of that kind of stuff. They just, they like to play with all kids. Uh, they don't have any kind of, well, what's wrong with you or little, or you're wearing that or any of that kind of stuff that you see a lot in the group environment, right? The group think, which, and the way we've lived and how we've lived, they've seen, they've probably seen more than kids their age should, should see. In all honesty, they've seen a lot of poverty. They've visited, I think, six concentration camps. 
Um, they've seen someone dead on the street from a drug overdose. They, they've seen a lot through our travels and not because we said, let's go see this person. We just happened to be someplace where someone had OD OD'd in a subway that we came through. Um, they've seen a lot of really sad things, which has made them um, very compassionate and understanding to other people's lives. And as well as very grateful for the life that we live and that we have. And although we're not, you know, we're not rich, um, we have a good life. We have a roof over our head. We have food on the table. And we have a lot of love in our house. And they're really, really aware of that um, and appreciative of it, which I think is, is really something amazing and beautiful. Um, they are both huge activists, um, especially with in the last several years where we've had um, a really unfortunate president in the United States. And they are very, very against inequality, um, racism, chauvinism, homophobia, any of that. Um, they're both passionate about women's rights and they will not have a problem talking about that or telling someone that they are being inappropriate, um, which I think is really amazing for a 16 and a 13 year old. Um, they've both participated in women's marches. Our daughter in Boston, she flew back to Boston as her Christmas present to participate in our son in Paris. They've done a ton of volunteer work. So, I mean, if, if we're talking about like, like that's like, those are the things of them that I'm the most proud about rather than saying, well, they did this well on this and they got this grade. Like that stuff is kind of at the end of the day, isn't as relevant and we don't focus on grades. They are in some classes that give grades, but we, we try not to focus on that. And this lifestyle living like this has given them the opportunity to really be good people. Like Will said, honor themselves and who they are and who they want to be. Um, which I think is really important and very difficult when you're in a traditional education setting. It's just, it's, it's just very difficult. And I think we expect a lot of kids to expect them to think different of everyone else in the group when they're in the group constantly. Um, our daughter started a business when she was um, in the ninth grade, which is doing really well and has clients on wait lists now. She started a couple of businesses that she's running. And I don't know if we weren't in this lifestyle, if she would have had the time or the confidence to do that because her friends might've said, why are you doing that? That's kind of weird. you know. So that's been a really great um, thing that she thinks on her own. Both of them think on their own outside the box and they believe anything is possible which I think is really, really cool that at, you know, at 16 and 13, they think that, excuse me, that they can do anything with their life. Um, and I, I think that's a direct, a direct result of how we've chosen to live. Um, they've seen, they've seen so much and they've had an opportunity to engage with so many different people in the world with different lifestyles that it's kind of made them think differently about what they want to do in their life. How are they with making friends? How are they with socializing with other kids and, similar ages or right now is not a good time to ask they miss people so much <laughs> they our life has a lot of social in it um typically outside of covid we we see people whether it's just on a tour or hosting one of our tours or whether it's meeting up with friends that we have all over the world now because we have traveling friends we have friends that we meet up that live in other countries that we've met traveling that don't travel anymore so essentially i mean when we were when we were in in ecuador and costa rica and france uh, we we knew that the kids were going to have the opportunities to go ahead and, and meet up with with kids their own age, especially our our son who was in a traditional school, and then our daughter who, when we were in France, she was in a traditional school as well. But what we did in every single country is that we made an effort to actually connect locally as well, not just to you know not 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 just that the kids were making their own friends in the playground, but that we made friends with other families. You know, and we actually had this crazy idea. <laughs> um, we were we, when we moved to Ecuador. This is when we actually implemented this: is that 
when we first got there, within like two weeks, we're going to go ahead and throw a party for, for everyone that we can get to know that we knew that wasn't crazy. No, everyone that was in, in Largo's class. In the first two weeks. In the first two in weeks. In the first two weeks, we <laughs> okay. sent an invitation to school with Largo to give to every kid in his class that we were a new family in town and that we were going to have a party and they were welcome to come. Um, and I think that was it. And if they could RSVP now at the time, my Spanish, my Spanish is not much better, but at the time it was not good at all. And Will was a Spanish speaker and Avalon Largo could speak it a little bit, but I was, of course, you know, I, I was the initiator of this cause I wanted us to have local friends. Right. And I wanted we to, like to do hard things. We like to do hard things, but I was also in an utter hard panic. Cause I'm good. like, hard things are underrated because I mean, from my perspective, you do hard things, that's how you grow. If you do everything that is super safe, super easy, no problem, then, I mean, you're not challenging yourself. You're not going to grow as a human being. I mean, put yourself out there. And throwing a party in the first two weeks in a brand new country or city, I mean, I would put that up there. So congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. And it was, it, so, it sounds crazy, but we would still do it now. I mean, we did it in France too. And we just said, I said, what's going to happen is, you know, people are going to want to ask questions and Will's going to have to kind of translate all these conversations. You know, most of the people that came did speak some English. So it was fine. And I kind of used a little bit of Spanish I had. And that's kind of how we set the stage of making friends whenever we moved to a new country. We just had a party. And then the people, some people would come and be like, what kind of people have a party when they don't know anyone and invite people? Of course, there were tons of people that when they found out one kid was in traditional school, one school kid was homeschooled, they were like, oh, well, that's very weird. Why is she homeschooled? Da, da, da. As their kid sits on the couch on devices and can't even integrate with any other kid at the party, right? You know, you've been there, you've seen it. Um, not that all kids are like that, but we've had that. We've had a lot of judgment on us at parties. And then the second party, those people just don't come. But the people that want to meet people from a different country and want to have their kids have this experience come. And that's kind of been our way of making friends in Costa Rica, Ecuador, and France. And then when we hopped in the RV, it became a little more challenging, right? And you, do you want to take over from there? Or do yeah, you want and, me- and so it, what, what happened at that point was that we, uh, we, we did our best to try and integrate into local society, I guess, more local <laughs> culture through like tours at that point. So we, we, we met up with, with locals as much as possible to learn about their culture. Um, we even did like a work away when we were yeah. in Italy for, for a week and change. And we did it in Ireland too with a family, which was fabulous. Right. And then we had this crazy idea that we were going to go ahead and walk the Camino Santiago for, for 45 days <laughs> because we realized that we were not doing hard enough things with our kids. And that they needed even more social. So what's <laughs> and, better okay, than... How old were they at this point? Because, I mean, that's a pretty intense hike. And, I mean, your kids are not they were... all that old right now. But if this was a while ago... 14... 13 and a half. Avalon had a birthday on the Camino. She turned 14. She turned. So 14, 14. and 11. 11 like and that. 14. Yeah. Around there. And you know, it's interesting that you bring up the social aspect because we're giving examples of social, but one of the things that happens in this lifestyle is parents freak out about one medical and two social, which are the two things that we never, ever think about anymore because there are the two things that there's great medical all around the world and there's social all around the world. And we've been very fortunate. Our kids are super social and so are Will and I. And because of that, being locked down in France since October has been really challenging for us. We have a lot of friends that live in the South of France. Um, we're used to seeing other travelers come in and out of our lives. So I, I'm not gonna pretend it's been easy. We're definitely struggling socially, but outside of COVID, sometimes our kids will say to us, there was a point in the RV when they said, 
we don't want to meet up with anyone else. We just need a little break. We're over socialized, you know. <laughs> we want more social though. <laughs> but taking it back to the Camino, though, we yeah. we, we we challenged the kids on on a, on a daily basis because we said, especially Avalon, who was she was turning fourteen, she was start, starting to talk about, you know, what am I going to do when when I leave the nest and sort of go off to college and so forth and so on. She and was talking like, okay. about that at thirteen. Yeah, kind she of. She was. <laughs> I think that that's usually a few. I, few years later but okay that's a very <laughs> weird thing to have her talking about that at 13 because from my experience that's a very u.s thing and that's a very starting early what are you going to do let's start planning for college da, da, da. and we were shocked that she was even kind of thinking about this but i think people had started asking her because people ask kids that from a young age and put all this pressure on them we're like you don't need to think about that yet you got plenty yeah. of time you know exactly. you've got a, life you'll is probably, long yeah you'll probably do five different things if not six seven different careers in your life so her challenge on the camino on a daily basis was to approach someone on a daily basis. And now conversations are very easy to have. You can have a conversation with anyone walking by um, and and ask them about their life, ask them what they've done for their career and ask them, it's almost like, like having a guidance counselor on a daily basis. And so literally every single day, she'd walk away with like 15 different conversations with people that we were walking next to because the Camino is very sort of it's a very popular route. Um, and so it wasn't very hard to find someone. And she would hear these incredible stories of people that have done amazing things and people who have reinvented themselves 20 times who are now, you know, in the midst of a midlife crisis because they figured, they figured out that what they were doing the first 20 times wasn't what they really wanted to do in life. And, and to this day, I think after all that occurred, uh, she's realized a couple things. Number one is that you don't have to be around someone your own age to actually have a really cool conversation right and then number two is that i have no clue of what i want to do with the rest of my life so and that's okay <laughs> right i mean most people don't right i think there's so much pressure on the social aspect of and kind of having a group and a click and all this stuff and we've been so fortunate i mean we've been very proactive with the social in the sense that we want them to be exposed to people as we travel. We're, we recognize that not every culture is kind of like the American culture where we say hi to everyone and we're like, hey, you know, want to come over and hang out? Um, so we've had to be a little more active than I think Will and I sometimes want to, um, but the benefit has really been there because now our kids have, are, have friends all over the world. They're not just friends their own age. They're not just Americans, um, which makes it really amazing when we were RVing because we'd pop into someplace in the Ukraine and it happened to be someone we met traveling in Ecuador and now they're living in the Ukraine. So there are three hours out of our route that we're going to take, but we're going to go there and we're going to have dinner with them. You know, and this kind of happened throughout all of our travels, which has been really something fabulous and amazing. And, you know, I even, I almost even hate to I love the question of the social, but I almost hate to talk about it because I feel like don't waste your time. Don't waste your time worrying about the social aspect. It happens. You'll be on a bus. You'll be on a tour. Kids make friends. I mean, we were somewhat more proactive than that because we had a kid in a traditional school and we were we were the new people. Um, so we had to be a little more kind of assertive and, and welcome people into our home. Um, but it happens. It just ha it happens. Kids will start playing on a playground together. If you're at a playground, three-year-old and a four-year-old start playing together. It gets it's one of the best things about this travel lifestyle, you know, you know, bonding really well and lovely and stronger as a family, but also learning about the world and getting friends from all over the world. Like I can't, I can't, when people say they're traveling and they only go to hang out in the expat communities and they only want to hang out with people or, or other from their, their culture, they're missing a whole, a whole marvelous aspect of this travel life that, that that's, that's so rewarding.
Well, that was going to be, I was going to just circle back on that because I mean, when you say they went to the local school and then they went with a handful of invitations and they passed them out, that was going to be my question. I mean, was this out to other expats? Is this all locals? Is it a mixture? I mean, I've lived in expat communities for large portions of my life and I, and I love that. Um, but I always try to integrate myself into the community and to the culture. I have lots of Panamanian friends now. That's why I put so much time and effort into learning Spanish. When I lived in the Middle East for eight years, I had lots of friends who were from not just Emirati friends, but friends from the neighboring Arabic countries. So although they were expats, they were not from southwestern Ontario, Canada, like I'm from. I mean, there's ways to have expat friends, but also have it worldwide and then so there's always different ways for yeah, culture. That was not the case for us in Ecuador um, and in France. The, it was, the school was only local families in both places. So only- And, it, and if there were expats, they were like French expats. There were, there were never American expats. Right, but there were not there were not many of those. It was most Ecuadorianos in, in um, Ecuador and French in France. There was no one that wasn't French in that school, right? No. There might have been some people from Paris, like we had some friends from Paris who'd moved to the south. Um, and it wasn't that we were, uh, you know, against being around expats um, or American expats. Um, that was, we just chose the schools that we chose for the reason. And it was a nice Purposefully. benefit. Yeah. Yeah, and it was a nice benefit to have our kids exposed to different cultures. Um, that's not to say we didn't hang out with any Americans while we were traveling or anything like that. No, we, we definitely did. But we found great, we found great, um, advantages to, to making local friends and just opening not only did we make local friends and it was really great to have them and be exposed to the culture deeper but we also got a different perspective on life um and 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 that was really enlightening you know the kind of their perception of the american lifestyle our perception of their lifestyle where we meet in the middle how we can all learn and grow from each other's lifestyle um on an adult level but also for the children as well and i think that's really important that's amazing so I want to talk a little bit about the RV, because I swear, I in all my travels, I've never met anyone who went RVing through Europe. That sounds like a very Canadian-American pastime. Is it popular in Europe? Like, well, I, I've never even seen an RV on the road in, in all the times that I've been to Europe. If you're over 65, it's popular. It's super Is popular. it? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, so it's it's cool. I'm, I'm not saying this at all in a negative context. I'm curious. Like, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. <laughs> if you're curious. in your 40s, no, it's not normal. It's <laughs> well, not typical. Dovetailing with the whole social question, the, the whole living in an RV as a family in Europe is very uncommon. There, there, very. We uncommon. found that's what I'm thinking. That's that's kind I of where I'm going. So I'm like, two people, families, right? Two that, families that we saw go, RVing the whole time. Now, now, and that was a a very unique situation, yeah. which we'll get to in just a second. Yes. However, like going through like mainstream Western Europe, nobody. Yeah. Like you, you, you saw like your weekenders, and you saw like the people in the summer who were going out there because you know that's their summer vacation, and that's fine. But when we started hitting, you know, more Central and Eastern Europe, that's when it started getting a little more interesting. Yes. Um, you saw uh, more, you know, caravanning as a culture, meaning like more of like the traveling lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and then once we hit more of, say, Turkey and, and 
countries, you know, even like Bulgaria uh, and, and Ukraine, that's when we started meeting some really, really, really interesting, interesting people. people. That's we actually met more families there. Um, a lot of French families like just had a baby and taking their year off to go travel in, you know, in an RV. Um, yeah, that was that was more it was grittier. It was people that were just more less a kind of the leisure travel and more wanting to just really dig deep into the cultures. We, we met people that had biked from Malaysia. We met people that were on motorcycles. We met, we just met people doing just all this crazy stuff. And we were just like, wow, this is just We saw people amazing. like a family that went in an RV all the way through Russia to Mongolia and then back. And, and, and you know, at that point, we're just like, we're not worthy. You know, yeah. you guys, like, you guys really oh, are so just... boring. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I was in, I lived in Australia for three years and we were, um, we had a big Toyota Land Cruiser and we were going around the Rad Center and we were camping one night and it was like just about to get dusk. And we saw this person riding like a push bike, like a, a normal bicycle in the Red Center and coming towards us. And we're like, what? the heck i mean it's like six o'clock seven o'clock at night it's gonna get dark we're lighting the campfire we've got all our gear i mean he's like yeah i was brought him over to the fire and he sat down and you know we started cooking and stuff and having a drink and he's like yeah um i've cycled we're like from from where he's like oh, i'm swiss I, I i cycled from switzerland we're like what it took him two and a half years and he cycled all the way down to the Middle East and then up through India and then all the way through Southeast Asia and then took a ferry from like Bali or something to Darwin and then Darwin down to the Red Center to Uluru. And that was like the same time I was like, Jesus. And I thought I was a hardcore traveler. Right? Like, Isn't like, that cool? <laughs> it's like so wild. It's like, I, I couldn't believe some of the stuff that people do. It was amazing. So, okay, so paint me a picture. I, I, I'm trying to get something in my head now, this RV. We're talking like a Winnebago? Like, wh what, what kind of RV is this? It's, it's listen, you, you don't think of kind of American Canadian RVers with like the washing machine and the McMansion, okay. you know, in the center island. Ours was 21 and a half right. feet. There's no pop-outs. There's, There's no, no nothing. nothing. This, was a, this was a fifth wheel or this was oh, a... God, no. No, no. This, okay. was, this was a, a class B, I guess you want to call it. So it was like a Fiat Ducato. Just uh, under seven meters. Right. Um, the kids were in a bunk bed and they could... From the bunk bed, they could touch their bathroom door, their closet, and if they it went to the end of their bunk bed, they could reach up and touch our bed, which came down from the ceiling over the table. Okay. So it was not. I mean, in, in whatever visual you have in your head, it was probably smaller. But it, okay. it could sport, it could sport <laughs> a European cozy. It was a good it was cozy. That's what we like to call it. But cozy. it can it can do a European rotary like there's no tomorrow. It would. So I mean, it was very maneuverable, which was which is great, which is what you need in Europe. There we saw one guy one guy who had yeah. a fifth wheel who had it imported from the US he was a swiss guy who was very proud of his rv and 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 he he had the hardest time parking it in this one spot we were in the peloponnese uh in, in greece i'll and, never forget and it that took him like day. 45 minutes to pull it out we're just like going uh, so our heater wasn't working well and our windows are kind of fogged up and i i'm sure from his end of course i went over and talked to him after because i had to know what the heck is going on with this dude right he's got a ford f-150 a very american truck as well i'm like what there's no way he just he didn't put this on a freighter and 
come on over. How did he get here? So we're all like this on the window, like wiping off the fog. And it, honestly, it's like four faces smished against this thing. We've been working in there. Our heater wasn't working right. We were trying to get it fixed. We were just kind of cranky and we're watching this guy. And it was like, we were at the movie theater. We were like eating popcorn, watching him for like an hour, trying to maneuver this thing in. And I said, he always thought we needed an extra meter on our RV. And after that day, he was like, no way. It's just, you know, it was cozy. Um, it was the right time in our life because I would not be wanting to do that right now with two teenagers. They were the perfect age. Uh, they need a little more space now. And, um, you know, they're stinkier as teenagers. <laughs> and it was a small space, but it was really a wonderful, cozy, lovely time. We worked from it. We schooled from it. Uh, we went all over Europe in it, and it'll always have such special memories. And, you know, we're talking a lot about education from an education standpoint. Um, those years in the RV were so profoundly rich when it came to education because we did so many site visits. You know, Normandy, um, Gallipoli, a ton of concentration camps. Will and I went to Chernobyl. The kids couldn't go because they were too young. They stayed in a hotel and we reported back everything. Unrecognized communist countries we went into. Tons of museums. <laughs> um, 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 oh, oh my God. It's, we've been gone to Kosovo, learned all about the war. We've, you know, um, Serbia, Albania, just we stayed with local families. The, the, the learning was profound really and we had hoped that we would but get can't the people same... just watch it on tv like isn't it the same oh, can't you God. just put on like the history <laughs> network or something and just... listen when we you know we were in we were we were in we were in moldova and so former you know ussr and then once we got there we heard of this place called transnistria and it, it is this 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 piece of land that is part of geographically Moldova, but it is the, the people who live there do not believe that it is part of Moldova. They think it's their own sort of sovereign land, which no one recognizes. Not even no no actual established country recognizes this country, except for two other non-recognized countries. And 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 we were like, we have to go there. We we have to check this place out. You walk you walk through the border, or I'm sorry, you drive through the border. There's there's Russian military because they're very highly supported by the Russians uh, at the border, actually working as a border patrol. And there's statues of Lenin. There's there's the hammer and sickle. There there's the whole nine yards there. Um, Wild place. Within 15 minutes of us driving in there with our RV, <laughs> with our RV, we were looking for a place to park just to walk around and, and get a feel for it because we weren't going to stay the night. We're just going to go and sort of day, drive and yeah. drive out. And we get our cell phone doesn't work there. There's no embassy. There's no type of way to get any help or anything like that. It was safe according to the Moldovan um, tourism board, but you don't want to spend the night. Right, right. And we get into a, a minor fender bender with a car and and like jessica said if this was one of those things that you know it says it on the u.s state department if you go in there we cannot go in there and help you because it's it is not this it, guy there, we have no we we don't have a state <clears throat> department officer we can try and do it but it's not going to happen like overnight and we're just like oh no and this guy comes out yelling out of his car screaming at us in russian we're like oh, we're so sorry we're so sorry <laughs> anyway another guy came to the rescue and was like get out of the way it was his fault anyway there was no damage done Long story short, we had like some food therapy of Kreps after that, and we were out of there. We're like, okay, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it sounds more dangerous than it was, but from an education standpoint, it was really, really interesting for our, for our kids. You know, we're talking about education, and you're saying, well, can't you just, can't you just watch it on TV? 
I think any type of education you can get, like a documentary on TV, is fabulous. But if you have the opportunity, if you can take some money out of your retirement, if you can sell your house, if you can take a leave of absence, if you can find a way to take your kids traveling, even for a year, and educate them that way and go to the sites where these places happen, I can guarantee they, as well as yourself, will be profoundly changed. You know, you read, we have read so much and we read about six books about the Holocaust to our kids before we ever visited a concentration camp. Um, nothing compared to those books until you step on that ground and you listen to a historian speak for three hours about what happened. You just, you cannot help but be changed. And we really need that for the younger generation. So, you know, you say, yeah, can't you? Because people always say, we'll just watch it on TV. If that's your only resource, then do it. Awesome, get that education. But if you can find a way to go travel and learn, particularly, you know, Europe has so much history that we could all learn so much from. If you can do it, do it. Your kids will be, you will be changed. Your kids will be so profoundly changed. I will never forget the three days I spent at Auschwitz and Birkenau. It, it changed me forever. And I read Anne Frank in seventh grade and I read seven other books. Well, and I read seven other books about the Holocaust, World War II to our kids and just, stepping on that ground, that ominous ground, and hearing someone who's an expert in that field speak cannot compare to any documentary or any book, period. It, it was hilarious, though, because- it was when, hilarious. I'm so, no, I'm so that's serious. That's an interesting follow-up. No, no, my no. My heart is on my, on my sleeve, and I was like, it was really funny. No, it was actually- the mood, well. It was actually really funny, because when we, when we were going through this whole, like, you know, Central Europe phase, and we were visiting all these all these concentration camps, and sort of like Jessica said, like part of our curriculum is is reading these books. And by the time we hit the sixth book, the kids are like, another book about <laughs> concentration camps? We can't do it. <laughs> we're just like, I know, just one more. Trust me, we'll we'll get through this one. <laughs> and then when it was over, we're like, oh. <laughs> and then we're like, okay, now we're gonna start start talking about Yugoslavia and what happened there, and then the Kosovo. And you guys more. have a really cheery um, <laughs> curriculum plan for the kids. <laughs> Listen, there was some really, Europe has a lot of history and a lot of really sad history. So there were some really tough education moments there, but there were also some really triumph and, and, and wonderful, beautiful things that they learned and saw, which was amazing. We're, so they, we're big they, on site visits. They know more about cheese than any other kids I know, but <laughs> they also know about the, you know, all the conflict that occurred in Europe. <laughs> oh, wow. gosh. Okay, so talk to me now a little bit about what you guys got going on at the moment because i mean you're not on an rv anymore you're not homeschooling and and your kids are not going to local school in ecuador what are you guys doing now well <laughs> remember how we said we like to do hard things right yeah, yeah. So, right so we uh we did the hardest thing ever well we after the two and a half years in the RV, we, we decided that we wanted to go to Asia. And, and Asia was, was first and foremost in our mind. And we, we knew that that was an area that was going to, you know, excite us like, like we haven't done in the world. And like we haven't done in, in, in the world just yet. Because after a while, Europe, you know, Eastern Europe was very interesting. It's very unique and sort of very, um, I don't know, it's sort of educational. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Western Europe just became normal to us. And, and, you know, you, you, you play around Germany, Spain and, and France enough and, yeah. and it all just feels the same. And we knew that sort of, we had to get into, into the far East. So it was, we, we, we set off in February of 2020 for Japan. 
and then we all know what happened sort of soon afterwards with COVID. So we got- I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in here just for a second to tell about the education part of this, since I love talking about that, and you like talking about that, about how we decided where we were gonna go. So oh, yeah, can you yeah, hold yeah, that yeah. thought? Now that our kids are older, we've, we, within the last couple of years, we've, we are operating very much like a democracy. And so from an education standpoint, we have let them pick a lot of the places we've lived or gone. And for Asia, what we decided was we made them do research on every country in Asia outside of the Middle East because we want to do a whole special bike tour of the Middle East. But we said outside of the Middle East, well, we want you to watch a documentary, a video, YouTube video. We don't care what. Read an article about every country. We want you each to pick the three countries you want to go to. Each person in the family gets to pick three countries and we'll spend one month in one location in that country. And once you pick your country, you're gonna to have to pick your location as well. You're gonna to have to do research on the country to pick your location. And so we are one month in and I'll let Will continue from there. But that's, I think that's been really, because because people will probably ask you and, and they're probably questioning, well, do these kids really like doing it? Um, we spend a lot of, we probably have, we chat about this at least once a month. How's everyone doing? Are you still enjoying this? Anyone wanna make any changes? Our philosophy has always been that if the kids do not like it, we will not stop completely, but we will come up with a compromise because if one kid doesn't like it, four people don't stop, right? But if one kid doesn't like it, maybe we only do six months on, six months off or summers only, or, you know, come up with some sort of a compromise so that everyone's happy. And so far, this has worked out really well for us because we have a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old who still really enjoy doing this. Well, you um, must they, have strategies because, I mean, six years, six years is a substantial amount of time. I mean, and if you have a 16-year-old, we're talking a large portion of her life and you, almost half of your son's life. So, I mean, there must be strategy. So that's really interesting that you actually bring them into the decision-making process. I think that's brilliant. Absolutely. We did not when they were, when we were in Costa Rica and Ecuador, um, they wanted to move right into an RV. We're like, we don't know if, about our finances. We don't know what's going to happen with work, yada, yada. The biggest decision they were involved in, the first one of the first biggest decisions was, when we leave Ecuador, where do you guys want to live? And we gave them two options, France and Spain. And we had them do research again. We didn't tell them what we wanted. We both wanted Spain. We didn't tell them what each other said. They both picked France. Then we gave them two cities to pick from. They had to do research. They both picked the same city you know, at different times. We didn't let them talk. We made them do their own research. And that's kind of, that's, those are just two kind of Asia and then how we moved to France. Those are just two kind of bigger examples, but we have, they do have a lot of, um, I don't know, I wouldn't say voting power, but like we, we sit and we discuss it. They never feel like this is our agenda and they hate it and they want to go live a different life. Um, if they did, this would not work. I don't, I don't, I can't imagine how any parent could do this if they had a kid who really hated it, um, especially a teenager, because they really, they really, you know, go after what they want and they're not going to tolerate that. So I feel very fortunate that they really still enjoy it because we want to stay out here too. But we've, they always have known that if someone didn't like it, we would figure out a compromise. And so that's kind of how Asia happened and how the path we were going to take within Asia. And okay, also so then let's continue with Asia because so, so you guys made them research every country in Asia, but then what happened next? So we, we, we all came up with our four countries. Do you remember we what they to. all were? Uh, we actually picked four each and then it was over a year but we were going to knock some down so we were going to go to uh bangladesh india um these were, were yours to... what what were your picks okay, well one and then... for uh, i i wanted I don't vietnam thailand and cambodia i was bhutan india and, and miramar miramar 
Myanmar. See, I've been to all of the countries you said, Will, but I've been to none of the countries that you said, Jess. <laughs> and for the kids, I can't remember, bet- they, they wanted Australia, Japan, Singapore. No, Australia, Japan. Do you remember what those were? Uh, Australia, Japan, they wanted to go to the Maldives. Maldives, we said that's not in our budget. Um, um, what were the others? They both wanted Japan, so they thought they were going to double up on, on Japan. Yeah, I don't remember what theirs um, were. Theirs were, theirs were a little more... They pooled their resources yes. and, yeah. and theirs lobbied were, in. <laughs> ours were a little more like grassroots and a little more developing, and theirs were more, you know, we want to go where there's a big city and Hong Kong and stuff like that. And in the end, they ended up getting more than their two months in Japan. And so I'll let Will kind of yeah, tell... Yeah, so, so once we arrived, within two weeks... You know the whole COVID thing started going down, and we we started getting a lot of questions. What are you guys gonna do? Are you guys gonna stick around? Are you guys gonna go back to the U.S.? Are you gonna go to France? You know, are you gonna you know write it out? And we everyone that we knew that was traveling, not everyone, but a lot of them, were like hightailing it back home. And whether that was the US, whether it was Australia, whether it was Europe, we knew people traveling from all over the world. Most people went back to their home countries. And and we realized one thing, because remember the whole thing started in Asia. So we were like, okay, well, is it is it is it just gonna is it get worse done? here? Or no, is it-, is it just gonna get worse here? And next thing you know, but we were like, no, we're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna, we're gonna stick just, it out. We're gonna stick it out here because well, more than anything else, the Japanese are socially distant to start with. And, and, you know, they're used to wearing masks to start with. So, you know, if it does get worse, I can't imagine what it's going to be like some other place. Right. And, and, so, and we were happy in Japan. The kids wanted to spend like six months there to begin with. We loved the food, the culture, the people. Um, we were happy. And luckily, the government was willing to ex- or extend um, foreigners' uh, visas by three months. So we could feasibly get six months there. And we figured during that time, other countries would open up and we'd say, okay, well, now we'll go to Vietnam. You know, now we'll go here or there. Right. We thought it was just going to be a thing. For a couple months. And there you go. But uh, (laughs) but basically. How long long were you in Japan then? We were there for uh, five and a half months, essentially. Yeah. Um, and what and an we, we were waiting and waiting and waiting because we wanted to go to our next country was going was supposed to be South Korea and that got canceled. Then the country after that was supposed to be Philippines, Philippines that, that got, got canceled. canceled. And then it was Thailand. Thailand was like the big month for us because we had my daughter was turning sixteen, uh, I was turning fifty. Our twentieth wedding. We had all these we had, plans. We rented we had, a place by the beach so in Thailand. And all of it sort of just got got squashed. And so for that for that month of July that we're supposed to spend in Thailand, instead we went down to Okinawa because that was the only place that was open that we could go to. And it yeah. was you know still it was tropical. Warm. It was warm and everything else. And and we wound up staying with a at a at a surf hostel. With a bunch of twenty year olds in a surf hostel <laughs> because things are more expensive in Japan, right? And we always need to stay within our budget. So what do we need to compromise to stay in that budget? And we wanted to have some, you know, do some things we don't normally do and treat ourselves to a nice hotel, which we never do for those big celebrations. And as a compromise, we needed to stay in a surf hostel. So the four of us slept in a surf hostel, sharing one bathroom with a bunch of twenty year olds, um, and it was and had like one hot plate to cook on. It was wild, but we got scuba certified. We stayed at a couple of nicer. places 
places, pampered ourselves a little bit, got massages, you know, and just really enjoyed the local culture. Will and I got new tattoos there. We got, so now we can never divorce me because we're, <laughs> we're, we're ink together. <laughs> um, and then I guess, I mean, I'll, I'll speed it up, I guess, to get us to like, you know, because everyone's probably tired of listening to us. Um, <laughs> we had to make a decision what we we're going to do after that. Nothing else was open in Asia and we did not want to go back to the United States. We hadn't lived there. We're not against it. We just hadn't lived there in six years. And we knew that we couldn't go back. We knew from an emotional standpoint that it would not be good for our children as well as us uh, for our entire family. Um, and so we made the decision to come back to France because we have French long stay visas. And the plan was to just buy a ruined kind of a house and remodel it and teach our kids how to do that. Um, and kind of have that kind of experience while and riding out COVID and then. And then all of a sudden <laughs> fate stepped in. And and, and 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 the worst thing that could have ever happened to us happened to us. <laughs> we, we had always planned to get on a sailboat and learn to sail. Uh, probably not for a couple of years, but something came across my Facebook feed. It was an incredible deal on a boat with someone who was really ready to sell right in the midst of COVID. And it happened to be in France, not very far from us. So we didn't have to fly any place during COVID to look at it. And long story short, we bought the boat. And here which, we are. Which is, you guys is pretty great. experienced sailors? Not, no, not yeah. at all. <laughs> Okay. We had no idea how to sail. We do yeah. now a little bit, but at the time we didn't. We had to get, we had to get um, someone come teach us how to sail, and we practice a lot and all that kind of stuff. So when you're saying, you know, we can do hard things, and kind of when you said those are when the big changes happen, and we, you know, kind of learn more about ourselves. Absolutely, this is definitely the hardest thing that we have done. And if we had done this right out of the gate as we were leaving the United States, I don't think we would have succeeded because we were not prepared for how hard this was going to be back then, at least. We, we, have, we have, a, we have a, a theory in our life that if someone else can do it, then there's no reason why we cannot do it. And, and, and it, yeah. it is, even if it's just one person, it's every day, we're like, that guy's done it. We can do it too. We can do it too. And so, <laughs> I mean, we've gotten, we've, we've, we've driven down roads that probably we should have driven down and had to get pulled out in the RV by from, from in Turkey by a farm <laughs> tractor because we went down the wrong way and, and we almost destroyed our home. But, but All you know, those roads are not paved, are they? <laughs> no, no, no. And so they don't always have, you know, happy starts, but they have really cool endings. And so the boat is, is one of those things where, you know, we've been now at the marina for five months because of COVID. And, and we, yeah, we're locked. We've been locked down here since October. Yeah. And our, our instructor who was supposed to come down, you know, about a month after we got the boat um, could not come because of all the lockdowns that, that has occurred. And, and, you know, fast forward, we, now he's arrived and we've now sort of taken our sailing lessons and now we're qualified. We have insurance that will cover us now because we actually have lessons that say we know how to sail. But but we can't leave France now because you can't leave France or come go in or out of France right now. Really? Because yeah, it's that strict. Oh and you can leave for like a family emergency or some really serious. But if you leave, there's no if you leave and it's not that, there's no guarantee you're getting back in, even if you have. Um, if you COVID can legally test. live here, yeah. You know, oh, no, you, 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 even if you're legally allowed to leave here, they still might not live here. They might not let you back in. So I don't think it's going to last long. But so we're kind of in a holding pattern, which is okay because we're still learning some things. We're going to have our instructor come back for a couple more days, um, you know. But we're not used to being stationary for this long. So it's it's definitely been like anyone else, everyone else that's had challenges in their life, you know. Um, I think we can go to Italy. And can we go to Italy? I think we can. I think definitely Italy. Uh, you. You have to 
we're, 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 we're questioning whether we can make it to Greece because they're, they're really being harsh on, on the lockdown. Um, I'm wondering, you know, whether, because now the vaccine's being more of, of a, you know, an available thing. It's not 100% available, but I, I'm wondering whether we can get ourselves on any kind of list to get on. Yeah, I heard people like us, like on visas like that, will probably be like June or July. And we're trying, we're, our plan is to try to get to Greece for summer and then come back and cross over the Atlantic in November and then the following April cross to the South Pacific, which we've, we haven't spent, you know, kind of get back into our Asia trip, um, maybe in a different, in a different capacity this time, you know, go by, by boat. Um, but we'll just have to see, you know, what happens. I mean, you know, as well as we do in this lifestyle choice, you have to learn to be patient. Um, and you have to learn to, I guess, you know, our clients hate it when we say this, but you, you have to be willing to suffer a little bit, um, you know, and part of our suffering is not being able to have culture and people and we love to socialize, like I said, and we haven't had, we've only hung out with friends um, once in the last, since lockdown, the friends came like two weeks before lockdown and then we haven't been able to see anyone else since. So it's been challenging, um, but you know, we're still here and we have a good life and we're grateful for it. So I can't complain too much, but I am, all of us are itching, you know, to go and do something. And I had to go to the doctors uh, last week and take my son and we went on a train for the doctors. Cause you can, you, you can go to the doctors here. And he came back and him and I were telling Will and Avalon about the experience and Avalon started crying. She was <laughs> like, oh my gosh, I miss travel so much. And it was like, we'd gone out into the world and came back with all these grandiose stories. And they were both like, but what about us? You know? So we missed it. We, we miss it terribly, but you know, we're learning to sail and, and life is good and our kids are healthy and good. So no complaints. Amazing. Lovely conversation. Super, super exciting. Um, if my listeners want to follow you guys, if they want to learn more about what you do, if they want to, you know, see the amazing pictures that I see, I've seen you guys take around the world, uh, where can we send them? They can find us at World Towning. We're World Towning every place. So World Towning on YouTube. We put out a video a week um, on YouTube about our experiences. We have, I don't know how many videos, 300 videos okay. back four years maybe of all of our travels. Um, on Instagram, we post uh, mostly the, the daily ongoings. I handle that. So just what's going on on the boat, what repairs we're doing, how we're feeling. Am I seasick? Did I cry when I sailed this time because of the seasickness? You know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we're not active on Twitter, a little bit on Facebook. Um, and right now we're, we're getting in the, we're in the process of building, we host our, our businesses, um, we host group trips around the world. And so I'm sure everyone can figure out there have been no group trips. It's been on pause, but there's such a demand for people wanting to get back out there that we've decided to start building our trips again. And probably at the beginning of next month, we're going to launch our 2022 trips. We're not going to cool. do so any this year. So they'll be able to see the outline of the trips that you guys are yeah. going to do. Outline, if they go price, to everything. To your they website, can, which is once again? World Towning. Yeah. Worldtowning.com. Dot com. Yes. Perfect. Yep. And they'll have links to everything there. And that new site will be linked there. And it probably, it'll be up in about a month. Um, but we're really looking forward to getting back to traveling and traveling with other people, which we absolutely, you know, adore. And I'm sure that everyone listening, if they're traveling, even if they're not a full-time traveler and they miss their vacations, like everyone's ready to get back at it. And so we're optimistic that at least by 2022, it'll be happening again. Fantastic. Thank you so much, both of you, for an amazing conversation. I always love talking education, and I'm always so curious how people, real people, are doing it out there in the world, traveling and exploring, and how they're making a connection with their kids. I think it's just amazing. So thank you so much for your time, and we'll talk soon, okay? Thank you for Thanks. having us. Thank you so much for listening to today's interview. Talk soon. 
This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.